It's 2020. Leah Pika here. Today's guest is one of the analytics industry's favorite speakers and a data storytelling action hero. Let's find out who's kicking off the decade on the Present Beyond Measure Show, episode 53. Welcome to the Present Beyond Measure Show, a podcast at the intersection of analytics, data visualization, and presentation awesomeness. You'll learn the best tips, tools, and techniques for creating analytics visualizations and presentations that inspire data-driven decisions and move you forward. If you're ready to get your insights understood and acted upon, you're in the right place. And now your host, Leah Pika. Hello, hello, and welcome to the 53rd episode of the Present Beyond Measure show. It's the first show of this brand new year and a brand new decade. You know, they say that hindsight is 2020, and I believe this is the year you'll leave hindsight in the past. This is the only podcast at the intersection of presentation, data visualization, and digital marketing and analytics. So this is the place to be if you're ready to make maximum impact and create credibility through thoughtfully presented digital insights. I have a fantastic interview to kick things off with, but before we dive in, I wanted to let you know that I'll be presenting alongside 15 plus other analytics experts at the ObservePoint Virtual Analytics Summit, which airs online on January 15th. It's an all day presentation bonanza. So hitch a ride with over 5,000 other digital marketing and analytics professionals and prepare to be inspired by some of the most visionary minds in the marketing and analytics industry. I'm so honored to be part of the lineup. I'll be delivering my signature three pillars of data presentation enlightenment keynote, which will help you avoid the presentation zombification pandemic. So you won't want to miss this free virtual event. Make sure to visit the link on the show notes page or at leahpeka.com slash VAS20. All right, I'm super stoked to bring my next guest to you. He's just another incredible author in the amazing lineup of authors I've had the privilege of interviewing. And he is right in the sweet spot for this show. Let's get to it. Hello, today's guest is the Senior Director of Data Strategy at Domo, a data visualization platform used by enterprises all over the world. He has more than 15 years of enterprise analytics experience at Omniture, Adobe, and Domo. He's a regular Forbes contributor on data-related topics, and he received the Most Influential Industry Contributor Award from the Digital Analytics Association in 2016. He's a very popular speaker at conferences like Web Summit, Shop.org, Strata, AdTech, and Adobe Summit. And he's here today to tell us about his recently published third book, Effective Data Storytelling, How to Drive Change with Data, Narrative, and Visuals, which was somewhat relevant to the show topic. So I decided to finally get him on here. It only took, what, three years? So please help me welcome Brent Dykes. Thanks, Leah. It's great to be here. Well, thanks so much for joining. I remember we uh, intersected at Doma Palooza. I want to say it was 2017. Yeah, I think right? I think it was that year. Yeah, yeah. You were presenting that year on yes. data visualization. So that's right. 
And it was so great to finally make the connection because I had just heard so much about your talks on data storytelling. So I was so excited to see this book come out and I'm really so impressed with the volume of information in there. Um, so I, you are the first more analytics industry expert that I've had. I've had a whole slew of, um, different kinds of data present and presentation authors on. So I'm sure that the listeners would love to hear your origin story. How did you fall into this mystical world of digital? Well, I actually started out as a marketer. So if we go back in time, oh. I was actually a marketer. And, and then I started working for a web design company, did my MBA, got into e-commerce, and then signed on with Omniture. And that's where I started to get into the data world and working at, because of my background in marketing, I saw the incredible power of taking data and applying it to, you know, the decisions we're making as marketers. And so having that background, you know, I was, I was at Adobe slash Omniture for 12 years and then about three and a half years at, at, at Domo. So I've, over those years, I've worked with lots of large companies. I've seen, you know, this industry transform digital marketing mm -hmm. and digital analytics and the whole analytics space has, has been great to me. And it, if I go back to when I was looking at my degree, should I study marketing? You know, I was debating between accounting and marketing. So I was actually decent with the numbers and everybody would tell me, OK, you've got to get an accounting degree because then you're secure for life. Right. <laughs> once you're once you've got Ugh. that accounting degree <laughs> and I bucked the trend, and I actually mm. said, no, I actually enjoy marketing. I actually enjoy, you know, going down that path. So I went there and then many years later, actually, then the, the whole field of digital marketing emerged. And, and then that's where the, oh, my gosh, there's tons of numbers here. We can analyze the data. And it's based on marketing, not um, balance sheets and income statements. Right. So much more fun. Sorry, accounting people. <laughs> <laughs> my brother's an accountant, so. Uh, <laughs> no, it's a really vital role, I actually have so much respect <laughs> for roles that I'm terrible at. Um, so how did data storytelling start to fit into your career as it progressed through these different platforms and roles? Yeah, I mean, I actually started back in 2008, I started a blog on PowerPoint Ninja. So PowerPointNinja.com, oh, yeah. <laughs> I still have that. I haven't added articles to it in, in a while, but that's where I started to kind of talk about presenting and presenting data. And then just in my role as a consultant over the years and presenting information, I found, wow, this is really important that we communicate our insights effectively. And then in 2013, I think that's when I first did my first presentation on data storytelling at Adobe Summit. Mm -hmm. And then from there, I've presented every year, I've pr delivered multiple presentations and my my ideas and, and frameworks and concepts have evolved over those years and, and, and now represented in the book that I just published. So it represent this book that I just published represents multiple years of just refining my ideas and looking at what was effective, what wasn't effective and, and just learning from other people in the industry, how I could, you know, improve how I present my ideas, my insights, mm. communicate them more effectively. What is what did you find happen when you really started to find that secret sauce for presenting in a way that planted new seeds of thinking and got people excited and and all of that? 
Yeah. I mean, one of the things it, I, it got reflective for me because I was like to look back at maybe times when I wasn't effective and I could look back <laughs> and say, oh my gosh, I completely blew that because I didn't, you know, I didn't follow some of these concepts that I, that I developed over time. And so I was able to look back at times when I wasn't effective mm. or times when I was effective. And then I could, I could kind of diagnose and say, oh, that's why that worked. Or that's uh, why that was effective. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it was, I think it was interesting that way. And I recently saw a, a Twitter quote by Carl Anderson. I don't know if you know him. He wrote a, a great book on a data-driven culture. And he said that for him, his ideas don't really come out until you've written them. And <laughs> I found that as I've written, you know, I've written a few books now. On this book, just as you write things and put them down or or even just as I was preparing presentations, you know, as I was taking the ideas and, and trying to codify them and standardize them and kind of make them really robust, I found that I it was only until I needed to teach other people when I needed to explain to other people what worked or what didn't work. That's when it really solidified in my mind. Uh, these concepts. So uh, Mm. both through presentations and through writing, I think those are two good ways of developing my ideas. I really like that idea of using it as a reflective process, because even as you start to, I want to, I don't want to say master because that's the idea that we're mastering anything, right? Mm -hmm. But as we really, you know, refine our craft it's hindsight is always such a critical piece to look back on every single thing and say, Oh gosh, that didn't work. And I remember that time, but yeah, the contrast between before, you know, these skills and after you start putting them to use is pretty dramatic. (laughs) Absolutely. So, you know, you're kind of on the front lines of seeing how practitioners are working with the data and presenting it to their stakeholders. What do you think, practitioners and the organizations are struggling with the most in communicating what the data is trying to say to all of us? Yeah, I think one of the big challenges that we have is we have so much data, right? And as Mm. we go into the information and we're analyzing things and we're finding all of these really neat, interesting insights and, and facts and data points, then becomes a challenge. And I talk about this in the book where you're you're going, you're, you have to switch from that expl- the exploratory phase, mm-hmm. right? Where you're analyzing the data, you're finding interesting things, and then you have to pivot and transition to explanatory. And that explanatory, um, how we approach that is very different than what we're doing in the exploratory. At the explanatory phase, you know, we now have to take the information and convey it in a way that makes sense to an audience that may not know the data as well as we do. Mm. Uh, we may also, one of the challenges that we have is, is if we've done the analysis is deciding what goes into the story, what comes out of the story, you know, and we have to almost act like editors. Mm-hmm. We have to edit ourselves and that's hard. That's hard to do because we might want to show, you know, and this is one of the mistakes a lot of analysts do. They want to show the, what I call the analyst journey. They want to show, <laughs> first I looked at I this. Like that. Then I looked at this and then I looked over here and then I found (laughs) this and honestly, stakeholders and different people in the business, they don't really care about all the steps you necessarily took to Mm. find the insight. What they really want to do is they want to, okay, well, tell us about that insight. And so you have to kind of filter or edit yourself, which can be very challenging. And the other challenge that we sometimes have is not knowing what we know. 
Mm. You know, it's the curse of knowledge. We have this curse of knowledge where we we have this rich understanding of the the topic that we've analyzed or researched or looked at. And then it's how to examine ourselves and and think, okay, what what do what does the marketing team need to know or what does the financial mm. team or whoever what did they miss or, or you know, how much information do I share? And I, I think a, one of the big challenges that we have today is making that transition from the exploratory side to the explanatory side. That's a really fascinating way to look at it. That was definitely one of my favorite ways, um, favorite ways that you explained the whole process in general. And it's true. We want people to know how difficult something was. <laughs> How, Look at the pain I went through. How much time it took me and <laughs> the nights I gave up. And, you know, I, I, I think it's important to have recognition for that. And it's also knowing who the right audience is for that. You know, it's the process of presentation is always audience first. That's where I've seen it succeed. And your boss is a perfect person to let know how complicated something was, um, or a teammate, but, and that is the editor part is so hard because a lot of these readouts that I used to give and also see are what I call kitchen sink readouts where you methodically go through every marketing channel that you have running something running and you just one by one go through, here's the latest for this. This is what happened in here. Here, but it's not stitched together as one cohesive narrative. Um, so, what's your take on those kinds of presentations where the stakeholder might say, "I want to hear. I just want a whole update of everything." <laughs> Favorite request ever. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I, I think in those cases you're you're summarizing the data. So maybe you you start with a summary to kind of get that out of the way, and then you say, "But this is where the interesting thing is." Mm -hmm. Then you then you start to tell your data story. So it's hard to combine. You know, one of the I think one of the mistakes we make a data story has one. Of, this is one of the principles in my book is that there's a main point. Yeah. There should be a main point to your to your data story, if you're trying to share multiple main points, if you will, then you've probably got more than one story, Yeah, you know, and, and often what happens is when we're trying to share too much, we're trying to make too many points, then those insights can actually conflict and create noise for each other. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things we need to go in and we need to decide, okay, what is the main point that we're trying to make to our audience? And, and then how do we, obviously you have supporting details and, and how you communicate that is, is really important, but having a summary of all of these different things, you know, that's, that's not a data story. That's not how you start a data story. Right. And, you know, maybe the best thing, if your boss expects that is to get that out of the way. It's the credits. And then say, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then get into, but here's the interesting thing. You know, yeah. we've looked at all these channels. Mm -hmm. There's really, you know, here are some of the trends we're seeing. Nothing really jumped out at us. But when we looked at mm. our paid search and then you launch into the data story. And that's a perfect way to leverage and a real storytelling mechanic of the turn of events Mm -hmm. Where you're 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 setting that stage like, well, everything looks great, except, <laughs> right. you know, that, that that has a real impact. I've used mm -hmm. it and it definitely has a measurable impact on an audience. 
So I'd actually love to dive into the book, even though we're starting to get to some yeah, yeah. of the, the great pieces in it. So who should read this book? What kinds of situations are, what kinds of data are they working with that could benefit? Yeah, no. So my bias, obviously, coming from the digital marketing space, you know, so I've I'm very comfortable with marketing kind of examples. But what I've tried to do, and then when I came over to Domo, I was exposed to other uh, forms of data, and so I started to see, oh wow, this you know, telling data right. stories for HR people or fi financial analysts or operations people. I mean, we all have data today. So if I was to answer that question, who is this book for? I would say absolutely, it's definitely for analysts, mm -hmm. okay? But then it goes beyond that. I think that every role today has an element of data and that they are responsible for communicating with that data in their respective area, their respective mm -hmm. field. And so I don't feel like this book is just limited to data scientists or analysts. Mm -hmm. It could be for the marketer. It could be for the HR professional. It could be for the CEO. It could be for uh, whoever has data. And, and really, that's how I kind of look at it. If you have an insight and you struggle to communicate your insights effectively, with others, um, that's who this book is for. I'm going to help you more effectively share your insights so that why are we doing this? We're doing this because we want to drive change. Right. You know, that was one of the epiphanies for me as I was preparing to write this book. I was like, at the end of the day, why are we telling stories? Well, it's because we want to share an insight with other people. Mm -hmm. And we need those people because maybe they approve the budget. Maybe they're going to help us to fix the issue or seize the opportunity. Maybe uh, they're on our team. We need to get their buy-in to support what we're doing. Mm -hmm. Whatever it is, we need to influence and help other people to understand what we understand about the data. And, mm -hmm. and so that's – and then when we do that, when we introduce an insight – that's where we're really driving change. We're trying to, you know, our marketing campaigns need to change. Our HR hiring policies need to change. This business process is broken. We need to change it. Mm -hmm. And so if we can communicate that effectively and get the help, get the coordination, get the dollars, the resources or whatever we need, then we can drive change. And that was why for me, a big part of this book is, is about influencing, inspiring, motivating change. Mm. That's amazing. Yes. Especially because we see a lot of FYI meetings where I just need an update. I just want to know what's happening and what's going on. And for me, I, I guess there is a place for those. Mm -hmm. And my, my dream is that all meetings that are this gathering of people where normally there's some form of entertainment <laughs> is an actual medium for change, like you said, right. or action. I really love that. And something else you said I really liked about how this is for the marketer, the the CEO even. And I think that there's something to be said for the ones consuming the data to start learning these kinds of principles as well, because affecting change through the organization for consuming information in a certain way is what I'm finding my students are having uh, the biggest struggle with is mm -hmm. when my stakeholders want it this way, they'll never accept it this new different way. Um, how can I help them understand that this is better for them? So I'm curious if you've had any strategies work for you for affecting change through the way you change affecting change. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, I think I think part of what I've seen just in my experience is you can meet that criteria. You know, I've had people say, no, I just want it a certain way. Yeah. And you can deliver it that way and you can say, OK, here you go. Here's the way that you wanted it. But I have a better way. And, and, and will you give me the time? Will you give me 10 minutes? Will you give me 20 minutes? Will you give me half an hour? Whatever time you need to kind of show them this is a different way. And, and mm. that different way might be it telling a data story, you know, and I think because, you know, I've had people come up to me, well, you know, our executive wants it a certain way. They want the executive summary. They want it, a report delivered this way, that way. And I'm, I'm not saying that you don't provide that. I think you can provide that. But but then can you also then say it's almost like a side by side comparison. Here's the way you consume content today. OK, we're, we're checking that box, but here's a better way. Mm. Let me take you down a journey. And then I think it becomes clear to people once they see side by side. OK, yeah, I can see now once I have something to compare it to that maybe the way that we're doing it previously is not as good. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's part of the change management that you can, sh- again, I'm not saying to, no, I'm not going to do it that way. I'm only going to do it one way. I think you might have to, in, in the in the initial phase, you might have to do it both ways where you, ah. you, you do it the way that they expect it. And so you're delivering the content and then, then you say, but here's a better way. Here's, I'd like to show you something different that I think you'll like. Right. And then pique their in, their interest and their curiosity and then gauge it. Uh, there are going to be some people that aren't going to shift, at, at least initially, you right. know, and so it's going to take time. But I think it's something that if you can show them the better way, and I, I'm confident, especially when it comes to data storytelling, I think I've had people who are skeptical or maybe concerned, maybe their executives um, won't respond to stories. And I, I think you need, to, again, to your point, you need to know your audience and you need to be cautious and tailor it to them. But I'm confident because it's storytelling is built into our DNA. Yes. We respond to stories. Mm-hmm. And I think if we can tell our if we can share our insights in a way that leverages a lot of these principles that come from storytelling that we've over tens of thousands of years, we've built up as human beings, we respond to stories. And I don't care what anybody says, executives <laughs> are human beings. And they do have, you know, the storytelling gene in their DNA. And I think they will respond to it. I 100% agree. I like to tell my students that if you think that your VP isn't going home and binge watching something like Game of Thrones or something like that, or or reading a bedtime story to their kid and being moved by it, Mm -hmm. they're not robots. They are live human beings, even though sometimes this environment can make us feel like an us versus them dynamic where there's this wall between us. (laughs) And I think story is what breaks that wall down. Right. Well, I love the phrases that you use throughout the book to kind of explain various components of this process. So one that caught my attention was potential pitfalls of skipping steps in the process called data forgeries. I had never mm-hmm. heard of that. So could you give, could you explain what you mean by that and give us an example? Yes. Yeah, so, so data forgeries is an interesting concept that I developed and it came through observations of where people I think thought that they were having a data story or they were sharing a data story or they were hearing a data story that they might've been on the delivering or the receiving end. But if we look at the foundational pieces of those 
I'm going to put air quotes stories or data <laughs> stories. Right. They're actually forgeries. And so mm. I, I, I start with the first one is, let me start with what a data story is, what I believe a data story. So with a data story, you're going into the data, you're finding, you're doing some analysis, you find an insight, and then you explain or communicate that to a, a specific audience. And you might have to, go back to our editing point, you might have to edit that so it really resonates for that audience. So the first data forgery that I talk about in my book is where, and this is typically what analysts do, they 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 follow the right step. They go into the data, they do their analysis, they find an insight. And then this is where it breaks down. It's on the actual receiving end that they don't edit their data. They don't tailor it to their mm -hmm. audience. They, they expect the audience to understand the visualizations that they use in their exploratory phase mm -hmm. will equally work well in the explanatory phase. So it's almost like the director who's done their filming and just wants to present the information the way that they filmed it. And often what I've seen is when I've gotten excited about different movies, I'll say, oh, there's a director's cut. Oh, I want to see that because I love that movie. And then I'll go in and I'll watch the extra scenes and I'm like, well, actually, I'm kind of <laughs> glad that that was edited out. It wasn't really relevant to the story or it, it was kind of long. Mm -hmm. And I think we make the same mistake with, with as analysts or as communicators of our insights where we just share the raw information with an audience and, and they don't, they don't have the understanding of the data and they can't appreciate it as well. So that's, that's, that's where I call, um, that one is the, the data cut. It's kind of mm -hmm. like the director's cut. Right. Another one that I talk about is where, and this typically comes more from the business side, where they have a story already. They have a narrative. I want to show that our marketing campaign was successful. <laughs> yeah. So go find the data that shows that our campaign was successful. And again, I don't feel like that is a data story because again, you're not, <laughs> you're not starting with data. You're just cherry picking or mm. selectively, either consciously or unconsciously selecting data that supports your narrative that you've already, you, you have an agenda that you already right. want to support. So again, if you look at the output, it has visualizations. There's data. Yes. But it's not, for me, it's not a true data story. Mm -hmm. And then the last forgery that I talk about, and I call, sorry, to back up, I call that one the data cameo. So again, <laughs> kind of, a, yeah. it's, it's sprinkled in, you know, a lot of times when I think of movies that have cameos, the cameos are not essential to the story. Mm. They're just there to kind of add, you know, ha ha, -ha Cachet and yeah. Yeah. You know, not really important. It's, right. And then the last one uh, that I talk about, the last data forgery, is where you've seen this a lot of times. You'll look at the output and you'll say, wow, there's a lot of really cool visualizations, a lot of interesting uh, charts and different things. And then you start to scratch at the surface and you realize that they kind of skipped that first phase, yep. that, that they went in. They didn't really find a clear takeaway, a clear insight that is really grounds their story. And so I call those data decorations. Yep, that you know, was and, my favorite. <laughs> and you see that from a lot of people who are very good at, at the visual side. You know, yeah. they're very good at using whatever uh, visualization tool that they've that they have in front of them. But at the end of the day, when you scratch it, it there's there's really no. It's almost like they want somebody else to find the insight in their data. Right, right. And I think that's not telling a data story. You're creating almost an exploratory tool or experience. It's not 
telling a data story. And so each time I presented this concept, I've asked people to raise their hands. Which of these have you seen at your work? And consistently all three yes. get hand raises because sure. they're all very common out there. Yeah. And I, especially for the data decoration piece, what I was finding was that I, it's just more fun. It's so fun to start messing with the chart colors and how things are laid out. It's almost like a, a relaxing way of avoiding the much bigger work at hand, which is how do I frame this actual insight so that it's accurately, clearly represented with a very compelling recommendation. Right. And that's the thing. I think a lot of people, though, say, I'm going to find the I'm going to invent this new visualization that nobody's ever seen before. <laughs> and that's that's great. But okay. only if it communicates something right. in a better way. Mm -hmm. That's why we use that visualization, because it communicates it better than any other visualization we could have used. But often it's it's that data. You know, I'm trying to do something innovative mm -hmm. or novel. And with that then the insight gets lost, you know, probably because there wasn't an insight. And I understand that desire because if you're familiar with the six core human needs um, by Tony Robbins, which he translated from the Maslow hierarchy, uncertainty and novelty is actually a core human need. And I get caught sometimes because I go to a lot of my reliable standbys for communicating data clearly because they have a low learning curve and they don't require tremendous explanation. And I also recognize that sometimes a whole deck full of bar charts might be, <laughs> might be boring. So how do you balance, you know, people's needs and desires for novelty with that core focus of telling the important insight? Yeah, I think there are some different options that we have. We don't always have to go with a bar chart, you know, and, and in my book, I talk about some of those options. I think you've recently talked about the slope graph. Mm -hmm. um, that's something that Cole also talks a lot about. Yep. And and I think that there are some different options out there that if we need to visualize the information in a way that's not going to bore the audience, I think that's fine. But we can never uncouple ourselves from communicating something clearly. Mm. And so if that means at the end of the day, a bar chart is the best way to communicate it, then probably I need to, to go there and, and use another bar chart. But to your point, you know, if it's the 10th bar chart in a row, <laughs> there, there, you do have to think of your audience and, right. and am I going to lose my audience at some point? Maybe it might be better to um, trend the data or, or maybe look at it a different way. But typically I'm, I'm very grounded to uh, what is going to communicate things the most clearly mm -hmm. and simply for the audience and not try and go with some crazy visualization that you know, then you're going to look at your audience and they're like, their eyes are glossing over and they're, you're getting some confused glances from them. Yeah. At the end of the day, you don't want to lose your audience. Mm -hmm. So I think at the end of the day, I don't think we have to necessarily um, entertain our audience. I think <laughs> the data, the data should, if we have a compelling narrative and we have a compelling uh, message with our data, and the visualizations are a piece of that, but I think the narrative and the data itself can be all a part of really telling a compelling 
um, story, a data story that's going to compel people to act. And I don't think we have to get into the bells and whistles so much um, because at the end of the day, you know, we're talking, we're sharing insights about their customers. We're talking, we're sharing insights about their partners or our partners or wherever it is. And if we've got the relevant data and it's, it's timely and it's, it's, it's helpful to the audience, then I don't think we're going to lose our audience because we're sharing yet another bar chart. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I, I think you're making me reflect that if you've, if you have a deck of 20 bar charts, it's actually could also be a representation of, are you only looking at the data through one specific lens of comparing a number of categories or composition in something? Mm -hmm. Are there other facets of exploration such as trending or not ranking, um, you know, correlation, things like that, that can also take them on a more, a different visual journey just because you're now looking at it from different angles. Right. Absolutely. Interesting. So what, one of the things I love most about your book is it dove really deep into narrative structure, which I see touched on uh, in a lot of books, but you really went deep. You talked about Aristotle's tragedy and Campbell's hero's journey and Freytag's pyramid, which I actually just discussed with Cole Nussbaumer Naflik, who you just mentioned on our previous episode. So the question was always for me, how can an ancient narrative structure used in Greek tragedy be applied to a modern corporate presentation? Where do they intersect? Yeah, no, that's a great, that's a great uh, question because when I've looked at this, I, I kind of under, again, I'm analytics, analytical minded. I, you know, I, I originally thought that if I had the right data and visualize it the right way, that would be enough. Mm. And I kind of downplayed the importance of narrative. And as I started writing this book and as I started presenting on it more, I started to realize, oh my gosh, narrative Mm. is really critical and it's really powerful for how you present your information. So when I looked at uh, Aristotle's, you know, his his arc, and, and a lot of people summarize it as the beginning, middle and end, and I always found, yeah, that's, you know, a textbook has a beginning, middle and end. <laughs> so, and that's not a story. So I, I kept looking because I, I didn't, I wasn't satisfied with that. And then I also stumbled across uh, Campbell's Journey, mm-hmm. uh, which was in um, Nancy Duarte's uh, book, uh, Resonate. Mm-hmm. But I found it too complex. <laughs> the too same. complex for Totally the same. <laughs> <laughs> too complex for a business use case. Obviously, if you're writing a fictional novel, it's it's a great model or framework that you can follow. So I landed on Gustav Freytag, who is a German playwright, and he's he looked at the Greek tragedies, he looked at Shakespearean plays, and he found that they all had a very similar story arc. Mm-hmm. And what I've done in my book is I've taken that story arc and applied it to data storytelling. So the first thing that you do is you establish the setting. Mm-hmm. And so what that means is you're trying to say, well, here's how our data, you know, this is how we were performing. This is how our products were performing over time. And you can see kind of the trends there. And then all of a sudden, then you have what I call a hook, mm-hmm. which which then is that a dip or a spike in a metric. Mm, okay. And that is where you hook the audience because it's like, oh, wait a second. You're telling us that something happened, something interesting, something unusual, mm-hmm. something unexpected. Yeah. And then from there, we build up to what I call the aha moment, which is the climax, right? Mm-hmm. So that's, uh, we build up to that. And I, 
in the Freytech model, he calls it um, rising action. And I've converted that to rising insights. Oh, very nice. So so you basically (laughs) are sharing supporting details and and observations from the data that build up to your aha moment, which is your main insight that you're sharing with the audience. Mm And then to kind of finish the story with the, with a traditional story uh, under Freytag's model, then you have the resolution and and then basically all the you find out what happened to all the characters and everything's kind of resolved. Well, with a business setting, we're not done yet. We mm-hmm. have to take that aha moment and then say, okay, what do we do about it? Collectively, what do we do about it? And so that's where we go in and we actually talk about the next steps. We talk about uh, what is the solution. And so if you've done some analysis, you've found a problem in that stage, then you'll say, well, here are three options that we have. We can we can do nothing. And this is what's (laughs) going to happen. You know, maybe that's not thing. We could spend a whole lot of money and then maybe the the extra revenue we generate doesn't outweigh the cost. Or we have this third option where we spend a little bit of money over here and I think we can more or less solve the problem and it's, it's, you know, we're going to get a great return. And so that for me, that closure point of just tying everything together. And again, it goes back to the principles of my book where we're trying to drive change. We're trying to drive action that leads to that change. And unless we take, you know, we can't just say, oh, here's the aha, here's the <laughs> insight that we found. Aren't we so smart? You're now go and go forth and yeah. <laughs> leave on a high note. Yeah. No, but we actually <laughs> have to follow through on that insight and tell the audience or inform the audience, what do you do about this? And so I found that, you know, following this model, I found it to be very effective and very helpful for people to look at all of their findings and and go through them and decide, okay, how am I going to present this? Okay, well, I have to, I have to establish the setting. I have, I have my aha moment. I can go through all of my analysis and find findings that can serve as these rising insights. And then, oh, okay, so what am I going to tell my audience to do? What are those next steps? What are those resolutions? And I think that that model can be really helpful to people in, in training, taking their data that they have and transforming it into something that's actionable and and powerful to the audience. I couldn't agree more in the entire spectrum of all of the different practices and principles and ideas you can apply. I honestly think that arc, that simple arc is the thing that is missing Mm -hmm. from any sort of presentation, really. And anyone who really wants to level up their game and really start to see results, I think will start learning how to incorporate that arc into their information. So you did an amazing job really explaining and breaking that down. So another thing I loved, I'm actually planning on writing more about this in the coming year, are analogies. I think Mm -hmm. analogies are such powerful storytelling tools, especially, you know, in our tech heavy space for those people who are not sitting behind our desk all day, seeing how hard (laughs) things are. (laughs) So talk to me about how you see analogies being used really well. And if you have an example of one that worked well, that'd be great. Yeah. So one of the things about analogies is I I view them as mental shortcuts, right? So we come with Mm -hmm. maybe 
maybe data that's complex or harder to understand. And then when we, when we associate to something that other people can relate to, all of a sudden we're building a bridge or we're, we're providing a shortcut mm -hmm. to help them quickly understand something that may be more difficult to, to understand or follow. Mm -hmm. So I talk about it in the narrative section of my book. Uh, how do you identify these analogies? And I use analogies throughout, right throughout the book. So yeah. one of the analogies, and this is not invented by me, but very common, is we, compu we compare the human brain to what? A computer. Right. Because you have, you know, you have the, the memory, you have the hard drive, you have the, the inputs that are coming into the computer. And I use that, you know, it's, it's a pretty well-used analogy, uh, mainly because it's easy to follow and don't have to have a degree in biology or neuroscience to understand <laughs> how the human brain works. We can associate it to something right. that we all have, which are computers. Right. And there are several other, I, I'm a an analogy, uh, fanatic. I, I really, <laughs> I really believe in, in, in their power and, and that they can help to take the concepts that we're trying to explain to somebody and make them easier to understand and also to remember, yeah. right? Once you, once you've heard an analogy for something, a good analogy, you'll, you'll latch onto that and you'll reuse it again and again. So I they agree. are super powerful. Especially the more visual and even yeah. tactile. When I teach about the concept of cognitive load mm -hmm. to people learning about presenting, this idea that our brains can only store so much information rather than going into the actual synapses that are firing <laughs> and whatnot, I liken it to trying to juggle a number of balls in the air at once in the working memory. And if you throw too many balls at that person, eventually they're going to drop all of them. And that's right. the element of distraction. So, um, yeah, now if there's any um, source or I mean, you have examples in the book, which are great, too. But I think the more analogies there are that we can use in this field. I think the easier it's going to be to create that bridge, but I love the phrase mental shortcut. Mm -hmm. That is great. <laughs> so, you know, I'm all, I also have a question around like the curiosity about the trends that we're seeing in this space. There are companies creating more AI based dashboard, query based reporting systems. Hey, Alexa, what was our profit margin yesterday? And yet one of my favorite lines in your book is that every data story needs a storyteller. Mm -hmm. So what's your thought on the role of humans in corporate data storytelling? You know, will we become obsolete? Yeah, I don't I don't think so. I, I think that human beings have a place. We have a an ability to branch across different things and understand and connect things in ways that computers haven't yet been able to to do yet. I mean, they're obviously make we're seeing amazing uh, progression in, in what's going on. And there's natural language processing, there's natural language generation. And I've seen a lot of vendors out there talk about, oh, we can we can take all of the visualizations that you have and we can add text to kind of describe the data. And I think that's missing the point mm. uh, because visualization should communicate really much better than text. <laughs> 
And, you know, that's neat that the technology can do that, but that's not explaining the information. It's just describing the information. I make a big point of that, that, and we, as human beings, we can't do that as well. We can't just describe the information. We have to explain it. And I think Mm. that's where we humans come in because we can explain. The reason why that product launch failed was because outside of our data universe, we saw that our major competitor just did a massive Mm. campaign and we observed that. We brought that in. You know, as human beings, we can connect things that that maybe in the the corporate data set, the AI or the machine learning couldn't couldn't detect because it wasn't a part of the data. They didn't know. And so I think that we have a way, we have a role. And I think that as human beings, we there may be ways that the computers can augment our abilities. They can help us to detect and find insights in the data, but then to be able to broaden that out, look at other data sets, um, and then communicate that to people, to business leaders, to our teammates or whoever, that's going to rely on us. And I, I think that that is uh, a key role. I don't think that we're going to be uh, removed from that role anytime soon. I think there's always mm-hmm. going to be a role for the data storyteller. Now, one of the things that I have seen that that is concerning is if we're going to tell data stories and we're relying on these um, technologies of you know machine learning, art- artificial intelligence, if those are black boxes, mm. how do we tell the data story? Because we don't 100% know how we don't know what's in it. <laughs> yeah, we don't know. We don't know how they came up with it. We don't know if it's, mm, you know, there could be issues or different things. So there's, that's going to be the interesting challenge. How do we work well with technology? I see huge potential there to augment our abilities, to find insights, to even communicate insights more effectively using that technology. But I, I still feel like as human beings, uh, we understand the target audience better than anybody else. Yeah. And we're going to be able to bridge, um, the insight to that audience. Mm, Very well said. Okay, Brent. So we are at a segment called the upgrade. And I'd love if you could share any sort of tool or book or expert, any kind of resource that played a really fundamental role in your data storytelling journey that you think the listener might be able to benefit from. Yeah. So one of the individuals that I really inspired me and and I even mentioned him in my book, you might have seen it was Hans Rosling. Yes, of course. So Hans Rosling, if you don't know Hans Rosling, uh, Google him now. Uh, (laughs) Stop listening. Yeah, stop. No. But he, he was an amazing man. And, you know, I, I looked at I, I have a few stories from him in my book and, and I actually analyzed one of the one of the presentations that he did and breaking it down, how he ta- how he told stories with data. And so he was a doctor in his background and focused on global health trends and and just really took data and made it very personable, uh, fun You know, I think there's a lot of great quotes out there that, you know, anybody else would have found this data to be boring. Right. But he was he was able to inject his personality and his and his passion Mm. uh, for changing perceptions about third world countries, about Mm -hmm. uh, about health and different things. And his TED talks are amazing. And so he really inspired me. I I think that his uh, approach and, and how he. 
uh, took the data, made it approachable and accessible for other people, um, even though it might have been really complex and, and lots of data points. You know, he was able to take that information and make it accessible to anybody. Mm-hmm. And I think that was that's something he, he inspired me and and he was a big uh, focus of my book. Uh, agreed. I had never seen anything like what I saw in those TED Talks. And you're right. It's so much about the personality. You can breathe your own life into what might feel boring data. I don't think the data itself is inherently boring. It's not anything. <laughs> it's truly the enthusiasm and the passion of... Be- it's the difference between, hey, guys, uh, this is our readout and uh, our conversion rate went down to like, hey guys, it's Q3. So we did some interesting things last quarter. And these are some of the things we saw that all looks good here. But wait a minute, guys, we actually dug a little bit deeper and we have to show you did it, did it, you know. And one of the cool things about Hans is he was so excited about the insights that he had, but he cared that people understood them. Mm, I love that. He never kind of, it wasn't about him. It wasn't even about the data. He just wanted the people to understand the insights. And so he used all kinds of creative, he didn't just use, um, you know, you, you might be familiar with the, the, the bubble charts the that he Gapminder, used, the yeah. animated, yeah, Gapminder. But there are other videos out there where he used plastic containers. He <laughs> used, you know, all kinds of other things to just get the point across and help people understand the main point, the main idea Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's, it goes back to your original point, the audience and how do we engage the audience? How do we get them excited about the insights that we're about to share with them? And I think that, you know, he was a great inspiration for me on that front. Mm, great share. I love it. All right. This is our final question. Think hard here, Brent. <laughs> Imagine this very plausible scenario. You are perusing the vintage section of Dr. Volt's Comet Connection in Salt Lake City when you suddenly trip and fall into a vortex that pulls you back to the moment you're about to deliver your first presentation. What are you presenting about, if you remember? And what would today you say to yesterday you? So I'll I'll go back to when I was an intern at Microsoft. And I was presenting on different topics like Y2K. Uh, <laughs> How'd that go, by the way? <laughs> yeah. Well, so one of, one of the things that I would go back to that day now, working at Microsoft it was, it was great because I got to see the full power of PowerPoint and how mm. it could really be used. Cause I, I was coming into that internship. I, I, I used PowerPoint and I used it what I thought was effectively, but I had no idea about the full capabilities. Mm-hmm. But what I would go back to the, that initial few times when I was presenting, uh, as I would say, make sure that you don't take just the corporate presentation slides, make it your own. Mm, love that. And so what I found is sometimes when we work at companies, you know, there's a lot of uh, decks and and uh, promotional materials that are provided by the marketing department. And when I was in that junior role, I was just a junior marketer um, slash sales kind of representative for Microsoft. And I would take these decks and just, you know, look at the the, the talk track and follow the script. Mm. And that's what they want you to do. But then I'm just a talking puppet. 
I'm not, it doesn't reflect my personality, doesn't reflect my ideas. I'm just, uh, you know, I'm just a mouthpiece. I'm nothing more than that. And so I've always enjoyed, and ever since then, I've always enjoyed injecting my personality into every presentation that I present. It's going to have my sense of humor. It's going (laughs) to have my unique take on things. And what I've found is that the audience responds better to that mm. because they can, you're, you're excited. You're having fun. You're enjoying the presentation. I'm not just up there presenting what marketing wants me to present. Obviously you got to hit the key points right. and you, you can't deviate too much from the script, but within that realm, I'm going to insert my personality. I'm going to own this and I'm going to have more fun. I'm going to remember the content. I'm going to be more engaging Everything transforms at that moment. When you say, I'm going to own this content, it's going to be me up there, not just what somebody else has built for me. Wow, I really love that, especially because I think a lot of practitioners feel constrained visually by the branding templates that their departments create for them. So they don't feel they can deviate that much. But I really like what you're saying is see, like, look at the degree of flexibility that you have and leverage that. Right. I think that's great advice. Well, Brent, this was amazing, but unfortunately our time has come to an end. So please tell the listeners where they can keep up with you. Yeah, you can follow me at uh, Analytics Hero. I also have a website on my book, so EffectiveDataStorytelling.com. You can go check out, learn more there and follow me on LinkedIn as well, Brent Dykes. I'd love to connect with you if you're passionate about data storytelling. Awesome. And Brent's amazing book is available on Amazon now. The link will be on the show notes page as well as all the links he just mentioned. And I really think this is an essential read. It is packed with informative graphics and all sorts of illustrations that really, for me, helped me take it beyond the words and make everything so much more digestible and manageable, which is kind of the whole point of (laughs) the topic you wrote about. So absolutely must read. So thank you so much. I'm so glad that our paths crossed again. And I hope they do again soon. And I'm wishing you an amazing start to 2020. Thank you very much, Leah. Great to be here. Thank you for having me join your podcast. It's been a blast. All right. What an awesome way to kick off an already awesome year. Yes, already. I sure hope that you will run to the Amazon and pick up a copy of Brent's amazing book. And you'll be sure to find that link and all the other links and resources mentioned in this episode on the show notes page at leahpika.com slash 053. I would love for you to leave me a comment or suggestion because I want to hear about the challenges you face. And I'll leave you with a little bit of data presentation inspiration by... Mr. Brent Dykes himself, right from his book. And that is, if you are determined to have your insights understood and acted upon, you must shift your approach from simply informing to communicating. As American journalist Sidney J. Harris said, information is giving out, communication is getting through. I love a good quote within a quote, like a Russian nesting doll. (laughs) And it couldn't be more true. It's very important to make that distinction. And this is the year we're going to make that happen. So that's it for today. I'm wishing you a baller start to the new year and the new decade. 
We're going to make this a big one together. Namaste. And that's a wrap. I'd be like, well, this is my show and I don't have to answer. (laughs) (laughs) It's a mystery. Do you? And I'm like, oh, God. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, man, I've been there. That was awesome. (laughs) 